I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me as we spend our time in the Word of God this morning. Turn to Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. While you're doing that, I just want to say thank you to all of you who have been praying. As you know, well know, I was planning on being here last Sunday night and preaching, and the Lord saw fit to call me away to deal with some other issues uh, that needed to be dealt with, and uh, you can continue to be praying for that situation as it unfolds, as myself and the other leaders of the church deal with the situation at hand, just be praying for that, um, and know that uh, your prayers are being uh, answered even, I think, as we speak, and uh, so we're trusting the Lord with that, so thank you for doing that, and of course, thank you to Randy, who got a uh, I've always said to the guys, you need to be ready because you never know. And uh, sometimes they get a little more time than Randy had, but uh, he got a call about 3.45 in the afternoon and was ready for Sunday night. So, brother, thank you for that. That's uh, God's grace upon us. Well, this morning we're going to be looking once again in chapter 1, and I think it's important as we start our time this morning to just take a brief step backwards. It's always important for us to be reminded when we look at these things of what the author is saying and what he says. Uh, you know, the words are there and, and we read the words, but sometimes we miss what really is there. Maybe you find that to be true, as I do at times, when you study a particular passage of Scripture. You spend so much time in, in one little section of Scripture as we have been doing in this particular text that sometimes it's just necessary to step back and, and really take a look at the forest as you have been in the forest looking at the trees. Get out of the, get out of the forest a little bit. And I don't want us to get weighed down with the mire of any particular passage because I, I don't want us to lose the why or the how that it should be affecting us personally right now, particularly in a passage like we've been studying in Romans chapter 1. Oftentimes it's easy for us to take the big picture look and look back and go, yeah, 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 I see that and I believe that and I believe the doctrine of the wrath of God and I believe in those things, but, but really it's, that's past me. Right? Especially if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, we can easily sit back and say, well, yeah, that's other people us to do that. God would not have us do that. We need to remember Paul is teaching concerning the righteousness of God. A concept that we like to think about, a concept that is certainly comforting to our heart, but oftentimes becomes just an intellectual thought. God is righteous. God is righteous. That is the general theme of this entire epistle. That God is righteous. The magnificent magnificence and the wonder of the living God and all of the ramifications and all of the implications of His righteousness as it relates to you and I right here, right now. That's what Paul's writing thousand years plus later for our life here on this earth and for the implications of our eternity. And the place that His righteousness impacts our lives most is through the reality of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. 
If we were to really sum up this entire book in one sentence, it might be this. God's righteousness being revealed through the gospel. God's righteousness being revealed through the gospel. And yet, with that said, with that concept in our mind, with that theological reality in front of us, we must not think that the gospel only imparts good news or or good information concerning Jesus Christ. That certainly is true. In the strictest sense of the word gospel, that's what it means, good news. It is indeed particularly good news. It is, in fact, the essence of what the Apostle Paul began to tell us right out of the beginning of this book. He was a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Scriptures concerning His Son, who happened to be born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and yet who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. This is the gospel. This is the righteousness of God revealed. This is the gospel in the strictest sense of the word. It is all about Jesus Christ and how through Jesus Christ all who believe by faith are granted forgiveness from the penalty of their sinfulness and are given eternal life with God. And yet here's what happens as soon as those kinds of things are said intellectually. The implication of those words doesn't impact us like it ought to. The implication is that there is a need among all men. There is a need among all of humanity. Why? Because all humanity is lost. And oftentimes in an intellectual sense we say, yeah, well... As if we're outside of that. Yet because of sin, man no longer has a relationship with God the Father. Because of sin. As we were originally created to be in relationship with God. We are now without Christ. If we do not have Christ, we are willfully an enemy with God. And thereby we are on the road to eternal destruction. If we are ever to have eternal life, if we are ever to have a relationship with God and be renewed in our relationship with Him, then we must hear the Gospel. We must believe the Gospel. We must, in fact, live according to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that Paul is laying forth in this letter. This is the gospel that you and I must know. This is the gospel that you and I must be sharing with others. Because of the fall, man by his very nature is against the things of God. He comes into the world and an enemy of God, and he cannot in and of himself make the right 
choice. He cannot choose to please God or to entrust himself to God. He cannot do it. It's impossible. God must step in and draw man to himself. God does not do that. No one comes. Each of us, by our own nature, without Jesus Christ, are completely corrupt. This is the biblical truth concerning man that we must never forget. This is the biblical truth that the world hates. The doctrine of the wrath of God against sin. We must never forget it. We must have it locked in the recesses of our minds. Man is not able to please God on his own. Man cannot. It is a total inability. Total inability. To believe upon Jesus Christ as God has commanded us to do in the Scriptures would be in fact pleasing to God if man could do it. And so Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 the reality of the fact that man cannot do it. Romans chapter 8 and verses 6 through 8 For the mindset of the flesh, or the mindset on the flesh, is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Total inability, total impossibility, total anything within themselves to honor their Creator. They cannot please God. So this is how and why Paul approaches the good news, the Gospel, through the proven reality of the bad news concerning our complete, total inability. This is why Paul approaches it that way. Man must realize his true condition before God. You have to come to grips with who you are before God. You have to own that reality. You have to be in in agreement with God's assessment of you. Let me tell you something about your sin. Let me tell you something about your heart. If we as Christians who sin, if we do not come to grips with God's assessment of our sin as God sees it, you will never repent of that sin. If you try to to hedge and, and scale it and turn it and twist it and modify it and change it and point it out and put it on somebody else, you will never, never come to grips as God has with your sin and your relationship with Him is not right even right now. Man must realize his true condition before God. He must embrace the fact that he is lost in his own willful sin. 
If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ, you will not come to know Jesus Christ until you are driven to that place in your life. You must come to grips with the reality that you are lost in your own willful sin. Therefore, you are without any inability, any ability to rescue yourself from the rightful wrath of God. Man must realize this. Each person must realize this. We all must realize that the problems we face in life have nothing to do with the reality of God saying, I don't care about you. The diseases that inflict and destructive effects that they cause on all of humanity, the destructiveness of the God-ordained institutions that He has designed to show His relationship with the church, your marriage, my marriage, the family, all of those destructive things that take place because of sin does not happen because God in His cosmic reality somehow in His selfishness just sits back and says, Oh, I don't want to fix your human troubles. Because in Adam, we turned our back on the truth of God. We began to exalt ourselves above God. The inevitable result is our plunge as humans into the cesspool of continual sin. And we are facing the eternal consequences of that reality which God says is spiritual death. Spiritual death. Spiritual death is a very simple concept to understand. It just means eternal separation from God in hell. Eternal separation from God in hell. Nothing could be worse. This is the Holy Spirit's whole point in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 of Romans. God's wrath upon man is seen through the inevitable effects of man's fallen state. People say, oh, where's God's wrath? Really? Look in the mirror. Look at humanity. Look at the effects. That is the wrath of God upon unrighteousness. All humanity is guilty. In Adam, we all turned from God We all stuffed our nose and and said, no way am I following you. And the proof of that is that no one desires God. No one has a righteousness for God on their own without Jesus Christ. This is the condition to which we enter the world. This is the condition to which mankind and our own very own hearts know so well. This is the condition of those to whom we take the gospel to and we share the gospel with them and we engage engage them with the gospel. This is the condition of their heart. Those who inherently know the truth because God has placed the knowledge of Himself within them. Every man has that God consciousness. Why? Because God said you do. Because God put it there. 
but because every person loves himself. At the very center of our being is a life-size portrait of ourselves. Without Christ, we refuse to acknowledge God, and in fact, we have even invented gods of our own. And without God coming and doing something with your dead soul, you would never come to embrace Him at all or obey any of His commands. None of them. This is what Paul has been trying to get across. This is the big picture. This is the forest view. He's been trying to get that across to all of us as we have been studying this passage. All are guilty. Some people say to me after some Sundays, boy, that, that was certainly didn't make me feel too good today. If you walk out of here this morning and you feel good about your guilt... You're already under the wrath of God. We are all guilty. And when you and I as Christians approach a fallen world, when you and I as Christians confront the very sin of our heart that we see, we already know that we are suppressing what is true. When we go to the world and share the gospel, we already know they know the truth. We already know they know that God has created them and they have an answer to give to God. We already know they are suppressing the truth. How do we know that? Because God said. There is no one who lives in some kind of middle ground. There is no one who is in this place of neutrality in which they can choose to go over here in the good zone and over here in the bad zone. Everybody's in the bad zone. Man has already willfully made his choice to stand against God. He made it with Adam in the garden. We are completely unrighteous without Christ. And the ultimate fruit of our unrighteousness is eternal separation from God. It's like I said last time, we have sown the wind and we are, in fact, as humans, reaping the whirlwind. The axiom is as true as it ever was today. And part of the proof of that very truth is the depth of man's sin. How far sin will go. The expression of man's sinfulness is absolutely staggering. Paul tells us in these final verses of chapter 1 that God has given man over to himself. These are not the expressions of just a few. These are the expressions of humanity. Man has turned his back on truth, and the antithesis of truth is everything false. You cannot turn your back on truth and remain in truth. We understand that. You cannot in your own life, if you claim Jesus Christ and if you walk with Christ, you cannot in your own life continue to live in sin. You cannot claim truth and continue to walk in truth when you're in the darkness. It is an impossibility. Truth has nothing to do with error. Truth is antithetical to error. It's as antithetical to error as light is to darkness. 
Just as you cannot choose to remain in the dark if you are in the light, so too to be in the truth is not to be in error. Turn on the physical light, that light fills the room. When that light fills the room, the darkness is dispelled. You're no longer in darkness. There is no in-between place. Have you ever tried to do that? I tried to do that as a kid. We'd go to my bedroom and try to, to turn the light. Get it to the place where it was right, in, right between darkness and light. You ever do that with a refrigerator door? Try to open the door without the light coming on if it's not broke. You can't do it. It comes on. It dispels the darkness. That's what happens. There is no in-between place. You are either in the light or you are in the dark. Darkness is just the absence of light. I remember several years ago, my wife and I and the kids took a vacation down to Kentucky. We went to Mammoth Caves. We lived in Ohio. We just had to drive a few hours south, Mammoth Cave being near Louisville, Kentucky, and we went down there. And they take you down. You walk down these stairs into the depths of the earth, these massive limestone caves that you walk in, and they get you to this big room. They say, isn't it beautiful, all these beautiful things? You, yes, yes, beautiful. And they turn the lights off. I mean, that's dark. You know, when I moved to New Hampshire, the, one of the first things I said when I was driving at night, it is dark up here. I mean, it's dark. It's the way it was. I could have said, I I don't want to be in the dark, but I don't care how much I didn't want to be in the dark. The dark consumed me there. So too it is with truth. Truth is the light. And truth dispels error. And the only way for error to return is for truth to not be there. You want to know why you sin in subtle ways and in big ways? Because you have turned your back on truth. Turned your back on truth. Once truth enters in, all error is gone. It's exposed. It's brought to light. So when man in Adam turned his back on God, who is the truth, All that is left is error. That's it. This is what the Bible calls sin. And it is this which God has given man over to. And Paul shows the depth of that in verses 18 to 32 from three perspectives. We've we've talked about two of these already. the, The core of man's sinfulness. This is the very nature of man at his very root being, his, his nature himself, he is, he is utterly sinful in every way. Which produces the character of sinfulness that we saw last time we were together. The third is the coverage, the coverage of man's sinfulness. And we see that Paul uncovers this for us or shows it to us. In verses 28 to 32, the coverage of his sinfulness. You might even call it the scope. How far ranging does it go? We've already covered those first two, as I said. And this morning, I just want to talk about this remaining one. This last aspect of 
of the very heart of man. The coverage of his sinfulness. The scope of it. Not only by the different ways that it is exercised, but also, and probably most importantly, the comprehensive nature of it. What I mean by that is it simply covers every part of man. It covers his mind. It covers his emotions. It covers his will. Every part of us. Let's just be reminded of what Paul says here in verses 28 to 32. Romans chapter 1. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul once again tells us that this is the fruit of the seed of rebellion that man has willfully sown. This is the fruit of it. And God is allowing man to have it just the way he has asked for it from God. By his actions of disobedience, he has been given over to a depraved mind. Why? Why would God allow his creation to have such a consequence? Why would a loving God be so angry? tells us that it is because they did not see fit to acknowledge Him any longer. They did not see fit to acknowledge Him any longer. Literally, that phrase in the original language says this, just as they did not think it valuable to have God in their knowledge. In other words, the truth was no longer valuable. The truth was judged as worthless. Man turned his back on the only valuable thing, and the result that is left is everything with no eternal value at all. This ought to be a caution for us, listen, in our Christian lives, or even if you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as of yet, this needs to be the warning sign right in front of your eyes. It needs to be that crossing gate of the of the railroad crossings. This is a warning. If you remove the only one who is wisdom from your life, if you remove and push aside the only thing that speaks truth to your life and you remove it from your understanding, the only thing left in your mind is no understanding. That's what Paul says. Man is left with, look at it, a depraved mind. 
God gives him over, verse 28, to a depraved mind. A depraved mind is a godless mind. It's a godless mind. A godless mind's inevitable disposition is, as verse 28 says, to do those things which are utterly improper. Everything which is unfitting according to the very creation which God had made him to do. It's unfitting. Unfitting for what? Unfitting for what he has been designed to do and to be. You and I were designed to honor God. You and I were designed and created for the worship of God to give Him continual thanks. We were called to reflect the very character and nature of God in us. We are created in His image. We were created to do and be anything, to to do anything that would reflect Him and to do anything that does not reflect Him is utterly unfitting. because of his rebellion against God. He has been granted his desire. And not only are his actions godless, but the very thing that controls his actions, the very core, his mind is godless. Sinful actions are born out of a sinful nature. We know that, right? When the Bible speaks of the mind, when you read about the mind in Scripture in many places with the context, it's not just speaking of the very gray matter between your ears. It's not speaking of the very instrument in which we get intellectual understanding and we understand things. No, it's the very essence of who we are. It's, it's our very nature. When it speaks of the heart, it's, it's not speaking of the blood-pumping organ in your chest. It's speaking of who you are by your very nature. So when Paul says that man has been given over to a depraved mind, he means man has been given over in every part of his being to a reprobate, depraved, godless mind. That's what it means. That's what depraved means. Man is utterly depraved. Utterly depraved. The word depraved is the original language word adakimas. Adakimas. Literally means something that will not stand the test. That's what it literally means. Something rejected, if you will. Something rejected. Doesn't stand the test. It's been rejected. The word was typically used when someone was putting precious metals to the test. When they were testing metals. If you found something and it was supposed to be gold or silver or maybe copper, it would be tested to see if it was real, to see if it was genuine, to see if it had the qualities of what it was supposed to be. And if it didn't stand up to the standard, then it would have been considered depraved. It would have been considered rejected. It would have failed the test. That's the word. It's used several places in Scripture. I just want to show you a few of them. Jeremiah 6.30. You don't have to turn there. If you don't want, you can write these down, look at them later, but I'll read them to you. Jeremiah 6.30, Jeremiah the prophet, speaking to the nation of Israel about unbelievers of his day. And he says this, they call them rejected silver. 
because the Lord has rejected them. They call them rejected silver. They call them depraved. The word rejected is the Hebrew word ma'as. It means the same thing as the adakimas word in the New Testament. They are called depraved. They are called rejected because they have not passed the test. God looks at them and says, nope, haven't made it. And that implies, beloved, that there is a standard by which measurement is made. New Testament, Paul warns Timothy. He warns all of us through Timothy of the godless reality that will take place in the latter days. Just listen to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Realize this in the last days, difficult times are going to come. What kind? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll hold to a form of godliness. In other words, they'll be religious. They'll be outwardly holding to a form of religiosity, but they'll deny the power. They'll, and Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter households, captivate weak women, weighed down by sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Says we've had an example of this, is what Paul's telling Timothy. We've had an example of this even in our history, Timothy. Janus and Jambres, you remember them? They opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards to the faith. The word rejected there in verse 8 of that passage is the same word, depraved. Not only do they have a rejected mind, but they too have been rejected. Faith in Jesus Christ, who is the gospel personified, He is the standard by which all men will be measured. Paul even tells those who are professors of Jesus Christ to test yourself. Test yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 4 and 5, Paul warned the Corinthian church. Remember in 1 Corinthians, he calls them saints. He says, I'm writing to saints. I'm writing to you who, who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you as believers. And yet at the end of 2 Corinthians, he challenges them by exposing their heart because they too were challenging the truth. Paul had brought the truth to them. They were challenging even Paul's ministry to them. And at the end of chapter 13, or right almost at the end of chapter 13, he says, For indeed, Christ was crucified because of weakness, yet He lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, yet we shall live with Him because of the power of God directed toward you. So test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself? that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. Unless 
test. The word fail is the word adakima. Rejected. Depraved. So Paul says in Romans 1, man has been given over to a nature, to a very nature that cannot by itself pass the test. And in fact, a very nature that by its very self sinfully says that God cannot pass the test of them. For us, it's a knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the test. Jesus Christ is the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ who is the gospel, who is God's perfect righteousness. Man cannot stand up to God's perfect righteousness and be found righteous before him on his own. He cannot do it. The words of the depraved mind are like the description of the unbeliever that Job gives in Job 21. Job 21, verse 14 and 15, they say, that is the unbeliever, they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? Listen. We should not sit here this morning and be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And all humanity has sown the seed of rejecting God and we are reaping the fruit of God now rejecting man. The list of sins that follows in this text, beginning in verse 29, are just representative of the coverage of his sinfulness. This is not a comprehensive list. This is not every way in which man's sinfulness is uncovered by way of action, as if to say there's no other way than these that man sins. No. These are not the only sins that we commit. But they represent the fact that we are filled in every way to the brim with sin. Look at what Paul said. Look at what he says. They did not acknowledge God any longer, verse 28. But God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all. Literally, it says, having been filled with all. In other words, it's a done deal. That's who you are. That's your nature. That means it's comprehensive. In other words, every part of every man individually, every person, every person corporately who has sinned in the past and who will sin in the future, everyone who was there in the, in the mass of humanity, in the loins of Adam, in the Garden of Eden, we all sinned. And once we sinned, the results of that flood came flooding in and results in a totally, completely depraved mind. That is to say that no... Part of us could pass the test on our own. All are rejected. Because all have rejected God. Paul says in chapter 5, 
verse 12, Therefore, just as though one man's sin, through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. This is the reality. This is the condition. We are filled with all unrighteousness, unwicked, or wickedness, greed, and evil. I think in the context of Paul's letter here, these are, those are the four overarching categories. Those are the general categories in which all sin comes in this list of 21 things. They're the overarching areas under which all the others are, are listed. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. In other words, everything that's in this list flows from those. You want to you wanna put a, a, a whole title upon the heart and mind of men, just use those four titles. That's what men did. We're unrighteous, we're wicked, we're greedy, we're evil. Some of your translations add the word fornication to those first ones. I don't think that's the best. There's, no, there, there's really no good, or at least I don't believe, good supported manuscript evidence for that. It could fit well under those categories, that is for sure. But Paul has already addressed the issue of fornication in verses 24 through 27. The whole idea of impurity. So these four represent the kinds of things that man does. And I don't think we really need to go through these one by one. I think they're relatively self-explanatory to us. These are the things that are utterly unrighteous, wicked, greedy, and generally evil in every way. Notice what he says. We are full of envy. You know what that is, jealousy. Jealousy in every way. What somebody has, I want it. Who somebody is, I want to be. We're full of envy in every kind of way. Murder. We, we want to take what somebody else has and want to get rid of them if we, if we need to in order to do it. It's interesting that James says in James chapter 4, verse 1, that reason for quarrels and fights among you is not the other person, it's you. That the reason you fight and quarrel is because you have a desire, you're not getting it, and so you fight and murder. Strife, which is fighting, deceit, which is lying and shading and and. and Hiding what is really there, hiding it behind malice, which is tearing other people apart for your own good. You are gossips and slanderers. You talk about other people. You slander their character. You actually hate God. You're insolent. It's not a word we typically use in our society. But you really want to just injure people for your own pleasure. You puff yourself up, you're arrogant, you put yourself above other people, and then you're boastful. You take, you talk as if you are the one who made it all happen. Not only do you do evil, but you invent other forms of it. You're an inventor of evil, you're disobedient to parents. I'm always amazed that that's right there in the middle of the list like these. 2 Timothy 3, you got these lists. Last time evil things will come. And, and, and they always put in the list, disobedient to parents. Boy, I never thought like that when I was a kid. I thought disobedient parents, yeah, okay, I, I made my dad mad or my mom mad. They've got to do No, you know what God says? That's the worst. 
You're there, right in the middle of it all. Why? Because the attitude behind it is disrespect altogether. That's what insolent really is. A total disregard and disrespect for anything. And any authority. I'm sure there are kids right here right now going, yeah, whatever. You know what? That kind of response shows the reality of truth of what God says. That response alone says enough. Without understanding, untrustworthy, can't be trusted, you're a covenant breaker, unloving, you do not love others, and you're not merciful at all. Shattering list, isn't it? You can see the effects of all these things in our lives before God saved us. You can see it in your own life. You can see the ramifications of that by God's grace. He hasn't allowed you to suffer as you could have. We can see the devastating effects of all of this on our world. So Paul says in verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God, They know the ordinance of God. Once again, the reality in humanity and the reality of the truth of God is right in humanity's proverbial face. God says, oh, really? You want to know the truth? Here's the truth. You know my ordinances. You know the truth. You know that there is a penalty to pay. You know the rule. You know what you've done, and yet you willfully reject the truth. matter where we travel in the world, even those in uncivilized places, those things which are listed here are considered to be wrong morally. Some places they're even criminal. But the absolute bottom of the pit, I mean, you'd think it would be bad enough, these lists of things, but the absolute bottom of the pit is when those who participate in those very things which, by the way, none of us stand outside that crowd. The worst of it all is we give full approval for others to do the same thing. Sin alone is bad enough. It's worthy of death before our God, we know that, but even worse than that is to encourage others to do the same thing. And that's what we do in our own hearts, And that's what the pagan does every single day. We openly condone and we openly defend every form of sin. And our society loves it. One man said it this way. Our society has moved downward toward the beast. No one seems able to say this far and no further. Nobody. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way. The world as it is today is the greatest possible proof of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Our world today with its baffling moral problems, with its incredible moral uh, muddiness, 
with all of the loudness and the ugliness and the foulness on the increase is just an absolute proof of what the Apostle says here. It is God's wrath against sin. You cannot explain it any other way. There is no other explanation. We have been taught that education and culture and moral lectures and moral societies are going to make man moral. That's what we've been taught. He says, but that's not the case. They're not doing it and they cannot do it. No, no. This is part of the wrath of God against sin. So the modern world itself proves that the doctrine which it hates above every doctrine, the doctrine of the wrath of God is actually a fact. When the wrath of God manifests itself in this way, and when God withdraws His restraining grace and abandons man to himself, the result is what you and I see. Unquote. Wow. You say, so what's the answer? What's the answer? Those who are true children of God, we know what the answer is. We know what it is. The answer is the gospel of God. The only answer is the good news of Jesus Christ. The answer isn't morality. The answer is the gospel. You and I do not need more rules about how we can be humanly moral. We do not need those within the liberal Christian world to write another book on ten steps to be a better Christian. We don't need that. What we need is to fall in love with Jesus Christ. What we need is to have at the center core of our very being that relationship with Jesus Christ so that nothing else matters. So that we love one another as we ought and we treat one another in the ways that God would be reflected. We don't need morality. We have it in Jesus Christ. We don't need a diluted gospel. We need the undiluted gospel of God clearly proclaimed. Why? Because it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's what we need. That's the answer. You might be here this morning. You might not know Jesus Christ. You might be one of those who has intellectually said, yeah, whatever. Thinking that you can do it on your own. Thinking continually as you suppress the truth in those very thoughts, in those very heart, in your very heart and the mind. Saying, yeah, I, 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 I can't wait till this, this talking head gets done so I can get out of here. Well, listen, you can run from this day, but you cannot run from God. The hound of heaven will pursue you and you will either bow the knee in confession before Him through Jesus Christ or you will bow as an enemy one day. God by His grace has shined upon your very soul through His Word this day and we call upon you to repent. Be saved. How? By the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
He and He alone is your only hope. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I trust enough has been said. I trust that your word will do its work in the hearts of your people. And those who do know you, that it will convict them where sin has occurred, that no one knows that their lives would be rescued from utter demise if they do not. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray that this would be the day, a new day, a dawning day, a day where the bright shining light of truth would shine upon their soul, convict them of their sin, they would relinquish that and only beg for mercy upon your great grace. And that you, by your mercy and through your Son, Jesus Christ, would grant them faith to believe. That they might know you. They might know the Savior who loves to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for not leaving us hopeless not leaving us in the condition by which we are by choice. Thank you for pursuing us and drawing us to yourself and granting us faith to believe. May our lives be enriched and refreshed by what we've heard that we might live for you in every way. That your life, that your character, that your great glory would be seen through us in every way we pray. We love our Savior because He's loved us. And the only reason we can love is because of that. Use us by Your grace for Your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.